you would, let's pray with me before we open God's Word together. That's an appropriate song before, any time before we open God's Word. But let's just go to Him in prayer. Lord, we, we thank You. Uh, we do just confess that we need You this morning. We need Your Spirit to move in this place. We need You to guide and to teach us, to open our hearts, to see the truth of Your Word. And so we just ask that You would do that this morning. That as we open Your Word, that everything that we say and we do, that we talk about this morning would be in accord with your will, that you would show us what you want us to see, that you would uh, correct us where we need correcting, you would encourage us today where we need encouraging, but most of all, I pray that as we we open your word, that we would see you more clearly. Uh, We just thank you for all that you've done for us, and all that you are doing, and all that you will do, and we pray it all in Jesus' precious name, amen. Um, In Stockholm, uh, Sweden, in, in 1973, there was a bank robbery. Uh, you may have heard of this as I tell the details. Maybe you've heard of this story. But in 1973, there was a bank robbery, and it ended up turning into a hostage situation that lasted for six days. And what happened is, you know, the typical, kind of like the movies you see, a hostage situation. They bring in all the authorities and the police and the SWAT team and all that stuff. And as this bank robbery dragged on for six days, uh, eventually at the end of this, uh, it, it came to a peaceful resolution, no loss of life in it, and finally the, the two bank robbers surrendered and gave up. But a, a really strange thing happened at the end of this standoff in this time. And what happened was the, the captors that had been held captive by these two men for six days, when they got out, they started to tell stories and talk about their captors and different things. And, and the tone that it took was they were sympathizing with their captors. In fact, some of them even started to defend the ones that had taken them hostage for six days. And so there's a lot of reasons and a lot of study have gone into why that was the case and what's happening. Some people say that the, the authorities were really overzealous and in some ways they were more scary than the captors were to those that were in the hostage situation. But after that time, what ended up happening is psychiatrists and criminologists and lots of people have studied that case. And it's become known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And, and what that is, is where you begin to uh, uh, sympathize with your captor or those that abuse you or different things. And we see it in all different ways. And it's become kind of a phenomenon that we don't figure out. Uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of, of how that works and why they say that happens. But it's become known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And if you've heard that term before, maybe you didn't know the history of it. Or maybe you did, and that's a refresher. But, or maybe you just say, I don't know why he's talking about a bank robbery in Sweden in 1973. But the, the, the reason I bring that up and the reason I mention it this morning is, is simply this. As we go back into the book of Judges this morning, and we're going to be in Judges uh, chapter 13. I believe it's 137 on the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. We're going to be really looking at kind of snapshots in Judges 13 through 16. And we're to the last of the cycles of the Judges. We've been working our way through the book of Judges. But as we go back into Judges In a lot of ways, what we see is something similar to this Stockholm Syndrome. We we see a people that God has called out in Israel and they are oppressed over and over as they turn from God and different things happen. Except in this story this morning, as we begin and we see the beginning of Samson's story, that's who we're going to be looking at. Probably the most famous of all the judges of the leaders that God uses is Samson. But at the beginning of his story, we see some things that kind of echo this Stockholm syndrome. 
And what I mean by that is as we look at these cycles of sin, and we've said this over and over in Judges, there's cycles of sin, and they seem to be getting darker and darker as they go down. But the cycle goes something like this. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord. It says that seven times in the book of Judges. And the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the next line is always, and so God gave them over to whoever, one of the surrounding nations, and they allow them to be taken captive. And then the next line goes in that little cycle is then the people are oppressed and they cry out to God, save us. And so you see this over and over. We've seen this multiple times. Uh, I think we've gone through that cycle five times already where we've looked at those exact words in Judges and we see it over and over. And yet as we get to Judges 13, Judges 13 marks the beginning of the story of Samson. We see the familiar refrain, but something's different. And so look at the beginning of Judges 13 and what it says. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Same thing. Different people this time. It's the Philistines that are oppressing them. But then look at verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord peered to the woman and said, said to her, Behold, you are barren, and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Well, the son that she's going to conceive will be Samson. And so it's the beginning of the story of Samson. And we're going to talk about Samson today and look at some things about his life. But what I want to point out to you at the beginning is there's the common refrain. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistine, but there's something missing. There's a refrain. There's a part of the cycle that's missing in this passage. There's no. And then the people cried out to God, save us. It's, it's missing from this particular cycle. They did evil. God allows them to be oppressed. They're taken into another nation and no one cares. No one cries out and says, where are you, God? We need you to come and save us. And so I, I mentioned that bank robbery in Sweden at the beginning as the captors begin to sympathize with the people that have taken them hostage and have oppressed them. And then I read in Judges 13 how the people don't cry out to God anymore. They've become comfortable being oppressed and being under the nations that are around them. And so you get this picture that as we've gone further down this spiral, further into this cycle and judges, we've kind of landed at a point where people don't even cry out now that they need God to come and save them. And so you start to see this picture. And when you when you get that in light of where we are in Scripture, moving to this point in Judges, this is really uh, a sad, sad picture. It's really a scary thought. It's really the opposite of what God had wanted for the people of Israel and what he had called them to be. If we go back to what we looked at, even the very first week of this series, we looked at the end of Joshua. We could even go back to Deuteronomy. That's Moses giving his uh, uh, summary of all that God had done and reminding the people we could go back even further than that to the call of Abraham and to Jacob and all the way through. And what we see that God's doing with this people that started with Abraham is I'm going to call a people out for my possession and I'm going to put you at a certain spot in the world, which was, by the way, the, the center of the known world. I'm going to give you a land right in the center and I'm going to teach you what true worship looks like. I'm going to teach you who I am, and then you're going to be my light to the world. You're going to show the world what the true one God looks like. And you're going to be different, and you're going to be a shining light. 
And yet we get to this point in Judges 13 where they're oppressed. They're brought into the fold of a a pagan nation. They're, They're dropped right into it and no one even cares. No one says, oh God, please help us. There's no repentance. There's no desire to be what God's called them to be. And so as we follow into this picture and these cycles of judges, we've got to a very, very low spot. For 40 years, they're oppressed by the Philistines and essentially no one cares. That is the backdrop in which Samson is going to be born into. And so that's just kind of the the bridge to where we are with Samson. And so as we look at Samson's life, we're really going to look at it this week and next week. And I'll just warn you, this is not our typical way we work through a passage today. And part of the reason is we're going to be looking at Samson's life in Judges 13 through 16. And no, I'm not going to read all those chapters. We're actually just going to hit a few different verses in there, giving us snapshots of not just Samson, but I think what we see when we see Samson come up is Samson is a mirror that reflects what Israel is at the time. And I'm going to submit to you when we look at this today that Samson's not only a mirror of the people of Israel, he's a pretty good mirror of the United States of America today, sadly. And so I want us to look at that together and see what the problem is that we've gotten to this point, that they are folded into a pagan nation and no one cares. They just go, there is no crying out to God, come save us. And so there's a fundamental problem here and a couple questions we're going to ask. First of all, what is the fundamental problem that's led us to this point that no one's crying out to God? Secondly, what are the outworkings of this problem? And we're going to see those not only in Samson's life, but it really reflects what's going on in Israel. But we will see it very clearly in Samson's life. And I'll warn you, the the spoiler alert on Samson, a lot of you know the stories of Samson. When you really look closely at Samson, the great hero of Judges, he is a disaster. He's awful. In a lot of ways, he's absolutely a disaster. And sometimes as I was even studying this week and remembering the stories of Samson as a child, I go, man, I don't remember all this. I don't remember Samson being such an ugly picture in so many ways. But he is a mirror to Israel. And there's a fundamental problem. And then we see the outworkings of that. And then lastly, we'll just end with what do we take away from this? Because it's a fairly depressing story. It fits nicely in Judges. We've seen that over and over in these cycles. It's not a real pretty picture. And so let's begin right at the beginning with what's the fundamental problem that they've been. uh, They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. They are now oppressed. And then the story just begins. And I think the answer, the clear answer right at the beginning of the fundamental problem is the people of Israel have forgotten God. They have forgotten what he's done. They've forgotten how he set them up. He's forgotten what he's called them to. They simply have forgotten God in all of this. There's no crying out. They're completely comfortable with what's going on here because they've forgotten God in the midst of this time. And so when we look at this picture of them missing, we see Samson really is an exact example of Israel. And so as we walk through Samson's life, you're going to see these things played out in his life. And so look at how it begins. The story of Samson begins. We just heard that his mother is barren and an angel of the Lord appears to her and says to her, look at what it says in verse three, chapter 13, verse three, behold, you are barren. And have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. 
For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so you see this picture right from the beginning of what God's plan was with Samson. He goes to an unlikely place. Isn't that how God often works? We see this all through scripture. Goes to a woman who's barren, who has no children. And he says, I'm going to bless you with a child. And when you raise this child and when you bring him up, he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, that was a vow that was taken where you were set apart to God. Uh, You didn't cut your hair. You didn't drink alcohol. You didn't touch anything unclean. And it was a way to be set apart to God. Now, people would take Nazarite vows maybe for 30 or 60 days for just a time. But then some would live a lifetime as a Nazarite. And there were penalties if you didn't follow the things and there were rituals you could go through to, to relieve your uncleanliness, to cleanse yourself if you made a mistake. But part of it was a parent could say, I want my child to be a Nazarite and they would set them aside from birth. Well, God comes to Samson's parents and he says, this is the guy I'm choosing to begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistine and I want him set apart. This is what it's going to look like. He's not going to drink. He's not going to cut his hair. He's not going to do these things. And I'm going to set him apart is this vow. And so what we see with Samson is really what God's plan was with Israel. I'm going to set you apart so that people see who God is. I don't want you to look like the rest of the world. And so you see a real uh, parallel between Samson and what God was doing with Israel. I'm setting him apart. I want him to be different. I want people to see that there's something different with him. And so that's the way the beginning, the story of Samson begins. An angel of the Lord coming to Samson's parents and saying, when this child is born, he's mine. And I've got a work for him to do. And so that's what happens in chapter 13. You see some of the background of that. But then we're really introduced to Samson at the beginning of chapter 14. As he grows up, and he's is the best we can tell. He's at least they're trying to have him be a Nazarite to be set apart and to do these things. But then we're introduced to him in chapter 14, verses one to three. And look at what he says. So Samson speaks for the first time. Samson bursts onto the scene is, is who is going to be the judge that God's chosen. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his mother and father, I saw one of the dollar daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And so the picture you get is that God has called Samson to be set apart, to be his man, to lead the people. He's going to do a work in him. And when we are introduced with Samson, what we see is that uh, he has completely forgotten God. He's forgotten all the things that God has called them to be and to do, and he's not following any of them. Right in the very first thing we see of Samson, I want that woman who's a Philistine, that's who I need. Well, God has clearly told from the very beginning and and going back to when they took the land with Joshua that they are not to intermarry, that they are not to take an unbelieving wife, which it tells us she's from an uncircumcised people. That means she's not part of the covenant people of God. So he's going outside of what God's clearly told him. and He says, I'm going to go and get her. 
Now, what's behind that, and, and we, we kind of miss it in our culture, his parents kind of politely say, shouldn't you just stick with the people of Israel? And he says, I don't care. Go get her for me. Which that in and of itself doesn't really strike us as that shocking today that he would throw off his parents' advice. In that culture, that, that's pretty shocking that he would go, I don't really care what you say. Go get her anyway. And so what you see with Samson immediately as he's introduced is that he is supposed to be set apart for God's work, and yet he doesn't care. He's not following what God's called him to do. He wants the woman that he wants, and he saw her, and he likes her, and it doesn't matter to him. And so he's going to go against what God's clearly said. By the way, there's a, there's a principle here that you see run all the way through Scripture. It's not just something for the Israelites at this time, but that was, uh, we see it, what it's called in the New Testament, of being unequally yoked. That you're not to marry someone who's not a believer. A Christian today, biblically speaking, is not to take an unbelieving wife. And the Bible tells us why. It's the same reason God didn't want the people to go into this land and take pagan wives and, and, and begin to intermarry in this way. It didn't have to do with preserving uh, uh, a race or anything like that. What it had to do was idolatry. God clearly says at the very beginning, you are to worship me. Your lives are to focus on me. When you become a Christian, you now see that all that I have is due to what God has done for me. He is to be the center of my life. If you then go and are unequally yoked, you become two, become one in marriage, and you do so with someone who doesn't hold the most important thing in your life, you will become divided. At different times, they will begin to pull you away from God being the center of your life. And he says, don't do that. It's a spiritual reason that God says that. It will cause you problems. It's the same thing he said here. Samson's parents know that to some degree and they say, don't do this. And yet he says, I don't really care. Get her for me. And so what you see in Samson is the same thing we see in Israel. We just see it more focused in Samson's life. And it's the fundamental problem here is that they've forgotten God. He's not central to what they do in their life. He's just over here on the side. Yes, God says you don't marry Philistines, but I don't really care. Yeah, 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 but I'm not doing that. And so you see them totally throwing up throwing off what God has said. And so the fundamental problem here is they've forgotten God. They've either completely forgotten him or they so marginalized him to the edges that he's not really involved in their lives. And so the second thing I want us to see is how does that, what are the outworkings of that? Again, we see it in Samson's life. He's a picture of what's going on in Israel. And there's some real problems that come when we remove God from his rightful place. When we either marginalize him so much or we forget him altogether. And the first thing I would say that happens that we see with Samson's life is we begin to assimilate to the predominant culture. I mentioned this briefly last week, but there's a picture that when in our discipleship and discipleship simply means seeking to take every area of your life and making it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every area. When we move God out of that, that means there's a lot of areas of our life that we're not seeking to bring under the lordship of Jesus. We're not seeking to make every area of our life under God's direction as it is with Samson. And so there's a picture in Scripture when we remove God, when we forget God, what will happen is not that we just kind of stay in the same place. 
We don't just kind of stagnate and stay right where we are. We really move backwards. That's our sinfulness in us. I heard uh, missiologist Alan Hirsch, he's a British guy that is a pastor, uh, been doing this for a long time, really brilliant man. But he talks about that if someone comes to faith and let's say 25 years of age and they come into the church, he said, you need to realize that they are already a well-discipled individual. You're not getting a clean slate that you then begin in their discipleship of Jesus. They have been well-discipled. And the, and the point that Hirsch makes is he will say, we are well-discipled consumers. Where we remove God, our culture will flood in and take the place. And begin to pour into us on what they believe, what our world believes about different things. And so when you remove God from the equation, it's not that you're not discipled. You're just discipled in a very different way. And you begin to assimilate to the predominant culture. That's what's happened with Samson. He's obviously forgot God because the things that God have clearly said he doesn't care about. I don't care that God says don't marry here. Don't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. And what you see in Samson's life is instead of being this Nazarite that's supposed to be set apart to be a light and a picture of who God is, to be different than the culture around him. When you read through these chapters, what you see is that Samson really doesn't look any different than the world. He really doesn't look any different than the culture that's around him. Samson's life is one that's marked of uh, uh, to be just real blunt. He's a sexual addict. He moves from one woman to the next, to the next, to the next. Not only does he go for this Philistine woman, but when that blows up, he kills a lot of people and he moves on to the next one. That's basically the way the story of Samson goes. And instead of being a light, he begins to assimilate to the culture. A very violent, dark period in this history right now. And he fits right in. He's no different. He looks just like everyone around him. He's, he's intermarrying with the people that are there. Chapter 16, he moves to a prostitute. He moves from there to Delilah. He just jumps from one to the next to the next. That's the picture of Samson. It's not a man who's set apart to God. It's a guy that looks just like the culture that he's in. The sad part is when I say Samson's not only a mirror of Israel, but he's a mirror of our country today. I was looking at different uh, ways to illustrate that with where the church is today. And I happened to read an article this week that really just went straight to this picture. And, and what it said, it was an article in the Christian Post. And it was based on, I, I think I have the dates. I, I wrote down the ages and I can't remember exactly. It was either 18 to 22 or 18 to 24. Young, unmarried Christians, 18 to, I think it's 24. And their views on dating and sex. So self-professing Christians and how they look at the issue of dating and sex today. And so they interviewed, I think it was like 1,500 people that say they are believers, that say they are a Christian. And this is what they came up with. And I was shocked by this. 61% of Christian singles are willing to have casual sex without being in love. That's not 61% have had sex outside of marriage. 61% are willing to enter into a casual sexual relationship that's not even monogamous and it's not even with someone they're in love with. 61%, two-thirds of young believers, that's the way they view sex and dating. It went on to say that 11% total are even intending to wait till marriage to have sex. Now, when I read those statistics, I kind of feel like I have to say this. I 
feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I have to say this. The biblical view of sex is that you don't have sex until you're married. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. That we're not supposed to have sex with outside of the covenant of marriage. That's the picture in Scripture. That's actually what adultery means. You're having sex with someone other than your spouse. It's not just having sex with someone else's spouse. It's anyone who's not your own. That's the picture in Scripture. And so the question becomes, who are our young people being discipled by in their view of sex and dating? The predominant culture. That's the picture that emerges there. In fact, this article goes on to say at the end, generally, if you look at the dating landscape in the church today, it looks very similar to that of the world. There's not a lot of distinction between the way people date or in their attitude toward dating and marriage. Basically, what it says is that those that profess to be Christians look just like the world. It's exactly what's going on in the book of Judges. It's the picture we see with Samson. He looks just like the rest of the world. And so it's an ugly, ugly picture. But when we shine this light on Samson and he reflects the time of Israel, he really reflects our time today. And so as I say that, I feel like I have to at least stop here for just a second and say this. The truth is that young people today are being bombarded with the idea that casual sex without being in love is completely and totally acceptable. And so if you have children or you have grandchildren or you have young people in your life and you think they'll just kind of figure this out without me speaking to it, someone else is going to speak to it and it's not going to be what Scripture says. And so our job in discipleship is bringing us under the Lordship of Jesus in every area. And we are to be speaking to those things, to be actively involved. And with that, 61% have that view. Only 11% are even pretending to wait till marriage. The truth is that sitting here today, there's a lot of people, even in this room, that have gone through the heartache and the brokenness of making this mistake and believing what the world says as opposed to what God says. And hear me when I say this. If that's you, there is forgiveness and there is healing found in the blood of Jesus. Your worth is not dictated on whether or not you waited till marriage. God says, I love you and I accept you and I can make you new today. So you don't continue to perpetuate, well, I blew it and so now I'll just keep on going in that. God says, no, 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 you stop and you repent and you come to me and I will restore you. And I will love you completely and totally. So don't make one mistake that the world says and then compound it with a whole lot of others. You turn and you go to him and you say what God says on the issue. Because the truth is, a lot of people have made that mistake, but don't let that define you. You are saved completely and totally by the grace of God, not how well you did those things leading up. That is wonderful news. The heart of the gospel, you're saved by what Jesus does for you and not what you do yourself. And so don't let that continue to perpetuate. But that's the first thing. When we forget God, we assimilate to the culture that's around us. We allow the culture to disciple us as opposed to what God says. And then there's two others here, and I'm really going to put them together just for the sake of time because they're closely related. But when you look at the rest of Samson's life, what you start to see is not only assimilating to the culture, but when we begin to do that and we forget God, we really move and live and work out of the desires of our flesh as opposed to that which God is doing. And you see that with Samson's life. 
Not only do we move out of the desires of our flesh, you see with Samson, that he also sees his gifting and his abilities as his own, not what God has given him. You see the connection. When we forget God and then we do great things, we go, look at what I have done. Instead of look at the giftings or what God is working and doing through me, we begin to make it all about us. That's the story of Samson. He gets into bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And it's kind of like he just shrugs it off and my strength will get me out of this. I'm going to fight my way out of this. It'll be fine. To the point of even with Delilah, when she's asking him, if you know this story, it's in chapter 16. She's saying, how's your strength, Samson? And he tells her all these silly things. Well, if you braid my hair, I'll lose my strength. And so she tries that and it doesn't work. And, you know, he goes through, if you tie me up with these certain kinds of cords, then I lose my strength. And she tries that. He's kind of mocking her along the way. Finally, he says, if you cut my hair and then he goes down to sleep on her lap. Samson didn't really believe if she cut his hair. He didn't believe anything was taking his strength because he's completely forgotten God and he thinks it's all him. That's what happens when we forget God. Not only that, in his life you see him completely and totally living out of the passions of his flesh. I already mentioned that, but when you read in 16 verse 1, it says, Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. And then they try to get him in that situation. Gets himself into a bad situation because he visits a prostitute. 16.4, he goes and sees Delilah, falls in love with her. That leads to all kinds of issues. Samson basically goes about his life with just the desires that pop up. He's completely forgotten about God. It's all about what I want and what I'm going to get right now. He's also an angry, short-tempered guy that just flies off over and over. Right? The very first story of him is he wants the woman, get that woman for me, let's get married. He gives a riddle to the wedding party and then his wife tells of it and it throws him into a rage and he goes and kills 30 men. And that's kind of the way Samson operates. Well, this blew it, so I'm just going to go do this. And he goes from one thing to the next being uh, uh, guided by his own flesh. Over and over, that's the picture you see. What you really see with Samson is what the Proverbs call a fool. Proverbs verse, chapter 29 says, A fool vents their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. Samson vents his anger at every turn, constantly. That's the way he operates. In fact, in, in chapter 15, and we'll, this will be the last example here, just of the way he's following his flesh, the way he sees it all about himself. He, he gets into a scuffle. They try to bring him. The Israelites are going to give him over. And he says, fine, tie me up, give me over. In chapter 15, and they take him and they give him to the Philistines and there he is tied up. And then how does that end? If you know that story, he takes the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand men. That's the picture that happens there. By the way, and we'll get to this next week. God's working in all this. As hard as that is to see and almost believe God's working in all this. But what happens is he he kills uh, a thousand men. And then look at what it says in verse 15 of chapter 15. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he put out his hand and he took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Do you know what he's doing there? That's like a little rhyme. He's laughing. He's actually making a joke. He's making a pun. We don't get it in English. But in Hebrew, donkey and that word for heaps are almost the exact same word. 
in the way they sound. And so what he's doing is he's making a joke. Like, ha ha ha, donkey and heaps of men. Now, I want you to think about what that scene looked like. One man with a bone has just killed a thousand people. And there he is. And I don't have to paint that picture for you. You can paint that for yourself what that would look like. And there is Samson in the midst of that laughing. Ha ha ha. It's a pun. Heaps and donkeys sound alike. The callousness of this man and the way he operates in the desires of his flesh, the way he vents his anger, it is an ugly, ugly picture when we forget God. And you see that in Samson's life. Now, like I said, we're going to come back to that next week because you're going to see how God is using these things. And he's working in different ways. But as we end this week, for the sake of time, this is an ugly picture that's not surprising that it fits right into the book of Judges. But what do you take away from that? What do you take away from the ugliness and the depths of that, of when we forget God? This is basically what it looks like. And there's a couple things I want us to think about real briefly. One is a warning. God chose Samson. And he told his mother, I want you to set him aside. And he gifted him in great ways. There is so much potential left untapped with Samson in his life because he chose to forget God and to go and follow every whim and every passion of his flesh and all these things. And you see him just all these situations he gets into. And the truth is, even though he has great giftedness in his strength, And even though he wins lots and lots of victories, there's so much more that God could have done with a humble heart that's seeking him in all these ways as opposed to what we see with Samson. And the truth is for all of us that God wants to use you. He wants to use you in great ways for his kingdom, but it takes a humility. It takes a desire of constantly seeing that it's not me, it's what God's doing. And so with Samson, it's a warning in a lot of ways. What could have been had he followed God in those ways? But then the encouragement that's here, that's the warning, but I think there's an encouragement here and we'll flesh this out even more fully next week. But right in the midst of this picture, here is a people that's not pursuing God at all. Right? We said at the very beginning, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. God allows them to be taken captive and that's it. There's no crying out to God. There's no seeking God. You see the same thing in Samson's life. God has chosen him and wants to use him, but he's not seeking God. But right there in the beginning of chapter 13, when he comes and he tells his mother, he says he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to do these things. And then listen to what God says. The angel of the Lord says there. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And what you see all along in this story is people that have forgotten God. That moved by the passions of their flesh, that have assimilated to the culture, that totally ignore God in all these ways. And yet all along, God is pursuing them. All along, God is even using Samson. All along, God in his infinite grace is not giving up. I am still at work here and I'm still seeking And I'm still looking to redeem a people that will be a light that will point to who I am. That's the truth of the gospel. We are sinful people that oftentimes forget who God is, but yet God is faithful and he continues to pursue. 
and continues to love and continues to come after us and continues to seek us, to bring us back. And so no matter where you are today, and maybe as we talk about the ways in which we forget God, in the ways we allow our culture to, to guide us rather than what God's Word says, maybe there's parts of that you go, yeah, that's me. I've done that in different ways. Maybe like Samson, who is so callous to violence that he's making jokes about it, maybe that's the picture of your life. Maybe you watch lots of things on TV or you see different things and you just laugh at them. And you've kind of forgotten what God has said about these things. But what I want you to be encouraged with is that God still loves you and he's still pursuing you. And thankfully, wonderfully, marvelously, we are saved by grace alone and not our works. That we can rest and that God still is there and he is still gracious. And we see that even with Samson. God uses Samson in mighty ways. We're going to look at that next week. As crazy as that is. But the truth is, it's all God and his doing and his grace. And so as ugly as that story is, be encouraged that there's hope because God is still at work. Let's pray. God, we just we come to you uh, with thankful hearts, with gratefulness. That as we see the depths of sin and depravity and forgetting you and ignoring you, that it also just shows us the heights of your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you don't just turn your back on sinful people, but you continue to pursue us. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would show us that so clearly that we want to love you and honor you in all ways. I pray that we would take seriously our charge as your children, to be a light to this world, to look different than our culture around us, that we would seek to point to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.